Hello, this is Dr. Daniel Del Monte, and welcome back to Culture Cast. Today is January 9th, Sunday evening, and I'm here to continue with the discussion of the Enlightenment, and specifically I want to talk about Hume, David Hume, and his view on art. Now, Hume is known as a skeptic. He's a critic of religion, a critic of the argument from design, um, the idea that the order and beauty in the world can help us to infer that there is a uh, benevolent God. Uh, he's a critic of the idea of causal law, the idea that we can uh, establish uh, laws in nature that have a cause-effect relationship. A necessarily causes B. Uh, he's also a skeptic of certain metaphysical concepts like the idea of substance. We don't really have an impression of an underlying substance. We only have an impression of properties of things. So uh, he believes that we should ground all our ideas in impressions, and those that exceed impressions are actually meaningless metaphysics, and they should be cast into the flames. All right, so um, there's a lot to go, a lot to discuss on Hume. See my previous podcasts with uh, Hume's uh, thoughts, but specifically now, I want to address his views on beauty and judgments of taste. All right, so we appreciate art. We have certain um, insights and certain feelings about a book or a, a painting or um, a movie. And there are, there's a sense that we can be right or wrong. There's certain works of art that are considered to be works of genius that are timeless in their appeal, like the Sistine Chapel, something that is uh, uh, you know, appreciated by all. Even if you're not Christian, you can come and appreciate the beauty of it and the grandeur, all right? Um, what is it that separates these great works of art from the mediocre? What if someone likes a work of art that happens to be kind of trashy? Is, is everyone right in their uh, perception of beauty? Well, Hume says, first of all, that beauty is subjective. Beauty is not a property of things. So a property of things would be like its height, the materials made out of, so I have a, a dresser in front of me right now, right? The dresser is about, what, four feet tall. Um, it's about uh, a foot or so wide, and it's made of wood. These are properties of it, right? But beauty is not a property of something, according to Hume. Beauty is actually a feeling, a feeling of pleasure we get at a pre- at when, when we appreciate something, all right? And so the problem is, though, that if beauty is entirely subjective and within us, if it's just a feeling, then how can we ever be wrong? Okay, if beauty were a property, we would measure the property of something and determine whether we're really uh, able to see it. All right? Uh, but if beauty is not a property, then it seems like we have our feelings and there's no way to measure them. There's no external standard. And so everybody is always right. So if someone likes a certain movie that may seem trashy or have uh, vulgar themes and violence and gratuitous sex, well, that, that person's entitled to their feelings and they just like it and that's the way they are and that's okay. There's no objective standards about beauty. If someone uh, goes to the Sistine Chapel and just doesn't like it, uh, nothing's wrong with them. That's just the way they feel about it. All right. Um, well, we need to get away from this idea because... 
it seems like there really are um, standards in beauty. We can't just pretend that there are no great works of art and that there are no trashy works of art. Um, you know, that there we can't have this idea that you just it, no matter what you feel, there's no way to objectively evaluate it. Like if you say that the, the, the dresser is 10 feet tall, you're clearly wrong because the dresser has an actual property that's objective. But what about beauty? If beauty is only a feeling, then um, it seems like we could never be wrong and there's no standards. But Hume is here to say, well, actually there is, there are these standards and we can, first of all, establish that there's a common human nature. So we're not so diverse that we're going to have wildly differing reactions to the same work of art. True, there is a, a level of diversity such that we can never really um, have an absolute standard of beauty. Uh, the fact that we have different ages. People who are younger are going to appreciate, Hume says, romance, because that's their age. They're interested in that. When you get older, you have a more philosophical taste, and you want abstract speculations. So, um, you know, there's going to be some diversity but we do have a common human nature where, you know, we can speak the same language, as it were, and appreciate um, generally there are some anomalous people, but for the most part, people appreciate the Sistine Chapel. People understand why um, Van Gogh is a great painter. People um, have the same human nature. They value proportion and symmetry. They don't like disorder and chaos and decay. All right, so um, we have a common human nature. We're going to respond in, 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 in widely um, patterned manners. All right, and also there are these um, specially trained people. They're art critics and cultural commentators who uh, can educate the public and, to, and can give us a sense of, of what is good and bad in art. And so I think in our culture, we... we don't have this. We don't have people who are really nourishing the people, the people, the public, and teaching us how to appreciate good art. Because we have people who actually are perverting our taste. They're making us drawn to things that are not really good for us. And uh, look at some of the, the popular music and some of the um, uh, television shows. We're not encouraged to really read and, and to appreciate the finer arts. But so we could have these cultivated people that would ideally um, educate our taste and, and, and form some kind of objective standards so that we can say, well, that art is not really strong, it's actually corrupting, and this other art is actually ennobling and good. So in the Of the Standard of Taste is an essay uh, from Hume. He gives us some standards, even though beauty is subjective, by which we can confirm one sentiment's and then we can condemn another. We can have a sense of right and wrong so that um, certain feelings are just not true appreciations of beauty. They come from a disordered disposition. All right, so each person has uh, a sound and a defective state, okay? So we're going to come in and out of bad states for appreciating beauty. So just like with uh, our physical taste, if you have a fever, you may not taste properly, and so you can't really judge food if you have a fever. Or if you have jaundice, you couldn't um, distinguish between colors. So there are states where people um, 
are just sickly and they're not as sharp as they typically are. Well, the same thing with art. You can go into a, like an artistic sickness, as it were, metaphorically speaking, of course, where you fail to see the beauty in the Sistine Chapel. You fail to see the beauty in um, this wonderful book like uh, Franz Kafka. You, you don't appreciate it. Or it could also be beauty and the liturgy in religious worship. You may fail to see the beauty in what is really actually a beautiful liturgy. You may fail to see it. Okay? And so, um, because there's an, a defective state, there's something wrong, you haven't, haven't been properly educated, there's a lack of practice, a lack of um, experience in your judgments that's making you defective in your approach. So there's, just like you can be physically ill and not taste things properly, you can be also uh, spiritually and artistic, artistically ill and like certain things that are bad and not like things that are, that are actually good. All right, so what is the true color of something? The true color of something is broad daylight to someone in good health. All right, so if someone is depressed and gloomy and they're seeing a tree in moonlight or in, in the dark, is that the true color of the tree? No, the true color of the tree is in daylight to someone who is not uh, otherwise preoccupied. They can actually see the tree for what it is as uh, a deep green, for instance. So the true color of something is in the right environment. Same thing with art. You have to be in the right disposition, the right, the right frame of mind to really appreciate it. Otherwise, um, you might mistake it for uh, bad art. So if you go to the Sistine Chapel and you're preoccupied and you're very down and it's very dark and it's a, you have jet lag or something, maybe you're not really the best judge of it, okay? So these true judges with a cultivated taste, they have risen above the masses and they're gonna give us a standard of taste. They have five characteristics and we're gonna go through each one. Number one, delicacy, delicacy of taste. Number two, practice. They have um, repeated experiences. Um, number three, comparison. Number four, freedom from prejudice. And number five is good sense. So I'm going to go through each one of these. And um, it, it, it must be said that this idea of a true judge or an art critic, there is some circularity here if you really want to have a puzzle, a philosophical puzzle. Um, so who is the true judge? Well, it's he who or she who finds beauty. But um, doesn't that mean that we already know what's beautiful? If we're going to use be what's beautiful to determine who is the true judge. And so if we already know what's beautiful to find out who the true judges are, why do we need the true, judge to the true judges in the first place? You see, because the true judges are supposed to define for us what is beautiful, but we need what is beautiful to find out who they are. All right. So there is a circularity there. It's a kind of a philosophical puzzle, but the basic idea there though is strong. There, there, there are people who are set apart, they're cultivated. Um, if beauty is totally subjective, though, um, how do we know whether they're really grasping what is beautiful? Um, because it's just a feeling, not a property of the things. However, um, we can just accept the idea that there are certain people that are set apart and specially trained, and they have these five attributes that give them a special insight into what is beautiful, and they establish standards of taste. 
to give us an ability to condemn one taste and confirm another. Now, there's just this inevitable diversity where we have a natural predilection for things from our own age and country. Um, We're not going to like something in an old language, something that has antiquated um, practices. You know, for the most part, we can appreciate the Iliad or the Odyssey. That's, That's great art. That transcends time. All right. But, you know, there are certain things that are dated, uh, particularly comedy, because what's funny now may not be funny a century from now. All right. So we're not going to appreciate so much um, early America as we would now. Um, We're not going to appreciate 16th century England. Shakespeare, of course, transcends time. You have these timeless works of art that are works of genius that um, appeal to, to people from all ages. But there is this uh, predilection for our own time period. So um, that's a kind of bias we have uh, that we need to be mindful of. That when we look at a work of art from another period, are we not liking it because it's old and we don't relate to it? But really, it is great art. Okay? So we have to be careful of that bias towards our own time period. There is great variety in taste from places and ages. So different cultures, different time periods have different ways of doing things in art. Um, Now, if sentiment has no reference to what is beyond itself, if it's not about the object, then it must always be right. Um, So other determinations of the understanding, other judgments we have are about the object so if we judge the, the gesture to be five feet tall, we can measure it and determine that that judgment is actually wrong. But sentiments are not about the object. And so it seems like we have just this cacophony of different sentiments from all ages and times. Um, so the same object could be sweet or bitter, depending upon who is tasting it. All right, so what really is that object? Is it sweet or bitter in itself? It depends upon who's tasting it. Okay, it depends upon their sense organs, their taste buds. Same thing with beauty. The same thing could be beautiful to one person and horrible and ugly to another. All right? So we need to get into the right disposition to educate and to form our disposition and and our mentality to appreciate beauty. Hume says we need a perfect serenity of mind. Put your mind at ease. Don't be preoccupied when you go to the art museum, when you go to to read the book. um, Really be serene and have sustained attention. Don't be distracted. Don't be on your phone. All right? And have a deep recollection. All right? Be very concentrated and very attentive. And, you know, we, we need to be in the state in the modern world because... We're so distracted and we're so pulled apart by all these different impulses to check our phone. And, um, you know, we need to be able to just focus and enjoy the moment. And that's how you appreciate art. And if you can get into that state, you can really fairly evaluate the work of art. All right. So, um, again, these true judges of art have these characteristics. The first one is delicacy. So delicacy is the ability to distinguish minute shades, all right? 
um, nothing escapes the delicate sensibility and it perceives every ingredient, okay? So if you have a delicate taste buds and you're tasting food, nothing escapes you. The little hint of spice, the little hint of salt, the subtle um, mixture, you perceive all of it. Same thing with art. If you're delicate in art, you can perceive the different shades of color and, and different little details that really allow you to get a full grasp of the beauty of the work of art. So someone who's indelicate is only going to pick up um, what is gross and palpable. So that's Hume's way of saying whatever is um, obvious, whatever is most um, compelling about the work of art, that's all you're going to see. You're not going to see the subtle shades. So you have to be delicate. You have to, you have to train your mind to pick up all the ingredients. You also need practice. The true judge is someone who has a lot of practice. They've seen a lot. And that's going to give you a, a wealth of experience. It's going to make things less confusing. Um, you're not going to hesitate about, about your judgments. If you have no practice, and this is the first time you've actually looked at a, a painting or um, a, a movie, you have no sense of the history of the discipline, and you have no uh, context for it, you're, you're going to be very hesitant. You're going to be very confused. There's going to be a mist because you don't even know the basic parameters and the history of the discipline, how a certain work of art is challenging or critiquing the past in conversation with the past. So you have delicacy and also practice. Number three is comparison, where you have the ability to, since you have this broad experience and a broad storehouse of experience with art, you can compare what you're seeing to other works of art. And so you have to be able to have uh, experience of great works of art to be able to make a judgment. Because um, if you've only seen mediocre art, you're going to be more impressed by things that are really kind of mediocre. But if you've seen greatness, if you've read Shakespeare, then you know what great art really is. And so you can distinguish between good and bad art in a more effective way if you've compared things, all right? So awareness of excellence allows you to detect deformity, okay? You can see what's excellent, and that gives you a standard by which you can find deformity in art, okay? And also, the true judge of art is, is free of all prejudice, okay? Um, so you have to, you know, first of all, get rid of the bias you have towards your own time period, the bias we naturally have to what is of our own moment and be able to appreciate something as a person in general. Forget who you are as an individual and just appreciate art from this impartial perspective. Maybe you know the author or the artist. Forget that. That's just a bias. Um, don't privilege your own period of time. So step back. Be impartial. Don't think of yourself as this individual with a particular bias or prejudice. All right? And so you have to know the purpose of each work of art. Be able to empathize with the audience and with the artist that the, who was writing for a specific target audience. So eloquence is meant to persuade. Evaluate a speech in terms of its ability to persuade somebody. Evaluate history for its, for its ability to instruct Right? History is as a specific art form that's meant to instruct and to guide us 
in the way we understand our own past. Poetry is here to please. Poetry is here to charm and to... Um, the purpose of poetry is to please us. So keep these objectives in mind when you evaluate the artwork. Don't evaluate oratory and eloquence for something that's not meant to do. All right? Um, so, yes, there are going to be different um, reactions based upon your own humor. So certain people are more gloomy, certain people are more uh, comical, they're not going to like certain things if they have a more light disposition. Other people are more tragic and they love the deep, um, profound tragedies like Macbeth or Hamlet. Um, people are, are from different time periods where you know, contemporary America is going to be very different from um, you know, uh, Spain in the medieval Spain or something. So... Um, we have to be aware of this and, and don't let your own bias from your own time period corrupt you so much that you cannot appreciate an older work of art like, like Don Quixote or um, something from an earlier time period. Um, now, there's always going to be um, diversity. Some diversity, Hume says, is blameless. Um, certain diversity, you're going to have people, like I said, with de defective... Uh, judgments. They're not going to have practice. They're not going to have comparison. They're not going to have uh, delicacy. And they're defective like someone who has jaundice, someone who has um, a sickness that they can't taste properly. Their taste buds aren't working. Okay. Um, there are cases though, that's, that's not blameless diversity. That's bad diversity because you have people who are, who are bad in the way they appreciate art. They have bad taste because they... Um, have a defective state, all right? Um, but there is blameless diversity where, for instance, like I said, your age, if you're young, you're going to appreciate more maybe the amorous uh, romances. Whereas if you're older, you're going to be more interested in philosophical reflection. Um, and this is just a difference in taste that is blameless. It's not because the younger person is corrupt or the older person is corrupted. It's because they're simply different. And so there's not going to be these absolute precise standards of, of beauty. There is a certain blameless diversity. It's not due to a defect or a lack of one of the qualities of the true judge. But at least we have a set of um, guidelines we can use um, to find out what really is um, worth our respect in art. And those would be the characteristics of the true judge. All right, so delicacy, comparison, practice, and um, freedom of prejudice. Also just basically good, good, good sense. Just, just a basic good sense. All right, where Hume is kind of vague about that one. But we have at least four strong uh, attributes that we're looking for in the true judge. All right, and that can deliver us from this rampant subjectivism where anything goes. If you feel it's beautiful, then it is. No, no, no. There's got to be some standards. For instance, in liturgy, there's a lot of talk about liturgical abuses where people, you know, do their own thing and make up their own liturgy to worship God. And it's not appropriately beautiful. And um, so uh, we need to have some standards that are objective, not just the way someone feels. The true judge that Hume gives us 
can provide those standards. So this is Dr. Dan Delamonte signing off. Um, please subscribe to my podcast. Please give it a rating and uh, spread it. I want to share these ideas to ennoble and enrich my culture. And um, send me an email if you have thoughts or questions at dand325. That's dand, D-I-N-D, 325 at msn.com. Thank you.